And welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, and fellow coach, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on? We got to give the people, give the people what they want. Oh man, we've got our own jingle. Here it goes. <laughs> if, uh, if our podcasting career fails, John's just going to jump right into the jingle business. Far more lucrative, I suspect, than the coaching business. <laughs> I think almost anything is. But, you know, before you get your um, your jingle on, how do you become a better coach? Well, you know, my biased opinion, the best way is to head on over to the Scholar Program and take advantage of the resources, which is, gosh... It's growing. My pretty is growing. Yes. And so are the members. Like this thing's becoming its own phenomena. This thing's awesome. So, you know, last time I checked, we're just shy of 300 people, which is, which is nuts, which is awesome. Niche, 300. For co coaching, like, man, I would have been happy with 30. Yep. And, you know, we've got a sweet thing going on now. We're about, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to jump on a Zoom call with as many of those uh, couple hundred we got and talk about strength training for distance running. Whew. Oh, yeah. What a, oh, yeah. What a topic that is. So if you're interested in that, join in on the fun. Check it out. Get signed up. You have you'll have access to everything we do. It's a one-stop shop, and instant access. Join Mike Smith of NAU. He's a member. That's right. You know, top coaches in the in the country are joining in. We've got actually some of the top international coaches too. We um, do. It's awesome, which is wild. Um, but we're just the guys putting the platform out there. So uh, join on in. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's topic which is improving is very hard. <laughs> it is really, really hard. I wish it was easy. It's not. <laughs> no, I think this is funny because it's it's such a simple statement, but it's there's so much truth behind it. And I think this is the reminder that a lot of us need and a lot of our athletes need because we get fooled. And we get fooled by, a lot of times, high school. Because what happens is, in our early days of running, what happens? Improvement comes easy, right? It's very straightforward. We join high school, track, cross country, whatever. We don't train very much. All of a sudden, we start training. All of a sudden, our improvement is almost directly tied to the amount of work we get we put in and we get fooled into thinking oh this is great put in more work get better direct one to one correlation it's a very addicting linear relationship yes yep. this is fantastic and then what happens well you know after we've gone through that that thing called puberty and our our natural steroids start dropping down after we've you know exhausted our kind of clean slate of adapting to everything that improvement slows down and it becomes more difficult and it becomes you know every inch that we fight for 
is uh, is harder and harder to obtain. And what often happens is because of being fooled by the early success or the early ease of improvement, we start looking backwards and saying, hey, wait a minute. We're not getting these gains. We must be doing something wrong. Our coach must be, you know, doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. What is going on here? Or my favorite in college is the I wanted to want to return to how I trained in high school. I've I've heard that a lot um, from like college coaching peers of a college athlete, a runner, kind of at their wits' end, feeling like they're just like rich a plateau or they're not like progressing. Go okay. Well, I just want to train how I trained in high school because I know that works. Yep, that is a uh, you know that is a common one. And as I said, it's it's a. It's an understandable natural reaction because you get fooled by the early improvement thinking that the training and the work you put you put in was the exact reason that you got better, mistaking that you as a 20-year-old is different, a 20-year-old with five, six, seven, whatever years running underneath your belt is different than you as a 14, 15-year-old who's coming off soccer practice and baseball. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about training, right? Is training is very simple, but it's very hard. And, you know, we get fooled by that clean slate or the, the novelty effect, right? When you have zero to little stimulus in high school and then you're subjected to a consistent, steady stimulus, or even if you pick up running later in life and you, you know, start kind of a consistent, um, you know, regular uh, program of training, you get a lot better, a lot quick. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but primarily it's if we take the orientation that the brain is the master organ, it's the novelty of coordination, the novelty of intensity, the novelty of power, the novelty of endurance that you're subject to in your training program that creates these massive elevated gains and that synthesis though reaches a plateau and this is the common error so many you know athletes and coaches and myself when I was an athlete and a young coach made was just thinking that doing more of the same is going to have a big improvement or the same rate of improvement or even a partial but still high rate of improvement and the the truth is the brain does crave novelty. The body adapts through new. And how long are those time horizons are, you know, pretty unique per individual in the circumstance. But if you're not changing over this stimulation um, and the novelty of the stimulation, you're going to just reach this plateau. And I see this effect happen time and time again, not only with older high school athletes who were, you know, superstar uh, youth athletes or college athletes, even post-collegiate and master runners who are just very stubborn and saying, I know it works for me. I need to do this. But if you've already done it season after season after season, the percent increase of ability or adaptation you have available for all the work you have to do is very minuscule. And you're very like, you know, looking at what's missing from your training rather than add more of what's familiar in your training. Yeah, you know, it's it's almost like a little training cognitive bias that pushes us to look at um look at what we did through like these rose tinted glasses and think, oh, this is 
this is what I need to do. This is what worked in the past. Not understanding that every part of training fundamentally changes you. Correct. So (laughs) (laughs) the reason if it worked, you know, five years ago, it probably won't work now. Why? Because it's no longer a stimulus and it's no longer an adaptation. Unless you totally ignore it. But even then, you know, what, you know, we loosely call, you know, motor memory is in this is really interesting too. like in weightlifting um, uh, world is people who have already lifted a certain weight have a after a layoff or a break or a rest period or a time away from the gym, have an easier time um, getting back up to that level of load that they that they once enjoyed uh, with regularity and i had this phenomenon actually happen with a master's runner i was working with we were doing trap bar deadlifts in the gym he was you know getting up to like 300 uh 315 and then covid hit and then the gyms closed down and he didn't lift for like nine you know 10 months and he went back in the gym and after six weeks he went from scratch from having not lifted back up to like 300 in trap bar deadlift. And he did it organically without me being like, you got to chase this number. I go, just keep loading on what feels like. And he went through feeling, um, you know, uh, an intense but manageable effort or load. And um, I mean, I was amazed at how quickly this 42-year-old guy, middle distance runner, got back up from zero to 300-pound um, trap bar deadlift. It was nuts. Yeah, there's there is... Um... There is something interesting about if you've been there before, it's easier to get back to that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, been there, you know, relatively recently, not 15 years ago. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it, it's a it's an interesting phenomenon because it's always easier to go back to where you've been. Uh, those kind of uh, adaptations, those neural pathways, all that mm-hmm. good stuff are kind of ingrained and you just got to kind of they're they're like grooves. And you just got to clean them out so you remember them instead of like digging new groups. Mm-hmm. That's how I like to look at it. And that's hopeful and useful and encouraging for runners who have like a little bit longer injuries, like stress fractures or something that might take, you know, six to eight weeks to heal. It's it's not, you know, um, a death sentence, so to speak. It's just a reprieve. But your ability to, you know, get back to that previous state you're in, provided your progressions and mechanical um, efficiency is, you know, not compromised uh, or rushed, it, you know, relatively in the scheme of things, pretty short. You can get back to where you were pre-injury pretty quick if you're smart about it and you know that, yeah, the brain does a great job of storing that. And it's kind of like the phenomenon of riding a bike, right? Once you learn, you kind of never forget, even if you haven't been on a bike for years and years on end. Granted, your efficiency, your um, you know, uh, flu- uh, fluidity when you first hop back on that bike after multiple years off won't be as smooth, but you can still remember how to you know, balance and distribute your weight and create that um, you know, propulsion forward without falling off like you did when you first learned every so, you know, so often. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you know, I, it reminds me, there's this, this, uh, great video of this person who tried to learn how to ride a bike only with the, uh, handle like working backwards. Oh yeah. And it's fascinating because like, 
is it's incredibly difficult even though you think oh this is <laughs> this this like simple change incredibly difficult and can't go anywhere can't do it at all right can't even ride the bike because of just switch the handle from normal when you go right it goes right to now it's left or whatever it is so it's fascinating but then like after months and months and months of doing this it just like Finally, he goes from not being able to do it at all to it finally just clicks, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's a great example of this this kind of neuroplasticity of like how the brain works. And and I like to think of that, you know, we're talking about improvement, but this is a great example because this guy tries to ride a bike with backwards, er, with reverse handlebars, and for months makes, you know, zero progress essentially and then like for whatever reason once his brain finally processes comes around clicks he gets it adapts grows improves that same sort of process happens whether we're learning a new skill like that or whether we're adapting to training and i think (laughs) the more difficult the training the more experience we have um the longer we we spend in that like struggle period, right? Before we get over that hump into like, oh, I've adapted and grown. And I can see this, you know, I see this all the time on the college side, right? You have freshmen come in, they struggle. Sometimes they even struggle into their sophomore year, right? And then for whatever reason, at some point, it coalesces, it comes together, and their junior or senior year, they have these massive jumps, you know, with individuals who couldn't make the conference team all the way going to, you know, top three or whatever at the conference championship by the time they're, they're graduated because, like, their body finally absorbs, adapts, and, and grows. And I think that's what, when we look at improvement, we're fooled into this linearity and this one-to-one on hard work and getting better and what often happens is when we're in that struggle period we shift courses right and it's not to say that doesn't always work sometimes it's good but a lot of times we just say you know what i'm not getting in the improvement i want i'm not i'm not like seeing these massive gains so i'm going to switch and a lot and sometimes if you look at the pro level it's when we come face to face with our own limits, right? And we're face to face with our own limits. We're struggling to eke out a little bit here and there. And then you see people jump around to coach, to coach, to person, yes, to person. Yes, especially like in the second half of that career. Yeah, mm-hmm. the second half of the career because they're searching, searching, searching. Mm-hmm. Because improvement is really, really difficult at that point. And it's... It's a seductive narrative, right? I love it's we want it to be true. It's simple, it makes sense, it's straightforward. Work harder, get better. It is such such a great narrative and it's one, you know, trumpeted at you from an early age. It's, you know, ingrained in the American Protestant work ethic that we are endowed with. But the reality is you're right, Steve, like training um, you know, results or training um, you know, effects happen in waves and they happen in, in jumps. And, and this is why, like, you know, say like why Bonderchuk's methodology of that block training is so powerful because it, 
it calls out the truth. It says, look, you're not going to get better week in and week out. You can't run faster and more miles every single week without um, some type of compromise or breakdown. It's just not going to happen. Instead, what we're going to do is we're just going to do the same thing over and over and over again. And it's going to act like its own little um, adaptation curve, right? Super compensation curve. You're going to like feel really good in the beginning. Then you're going to kind of slump. And then you're going to like crawl your way out of this hole. And then all of a sudden, we're going to rest a little bit, i.e. put the brain under less fatigue um, and give you a rest week. So the brain can like actually like come out of this fog of fatigue. And then all of a sudden, all the specific work we've been doing, the specific rehearsal, coordination, fine motor patterns, expressions of power, power endurance through workouts and um, other very skill-specific transferable training is going to manifest in this breakout performance or time trial. And that's a very, but the recipe has to be followed, right? You have to give that period of recovery, recuperation for the fog of fatigue to dissipate. And the problem is though, we often go with the, you know, the the standard uh, super compensation um, model rather than the, the two factor model where we lighten up everything, load overall through intensity and volume versus in the two-factor model, it's more effective to lighten the intensity, but keep the volume the same because you still want to enjoy the, the metabolic dependencies you've created rather than create this whole brand new shift where you now um, you know, are eradicating the homeostatic um, norm that you've worked so hard over six weeks or whatever, however long your block is to establish. Um, yeah. but time and time, Oh, go ahead, Steve. No, I was just gonna, you know, I, I think you make such an important point there, um, with the understanding of adaptation, because for the sake of, uh, applicability, we often default to the super compensation model, right? Because it's easy to understand. It makes sense. It allows us to design things that are mostly right. But we have to remember that all models take the messy details, get rid of them, and then keep, you know, keep mostly accurate for simplicity's sake. Right. I mean, it's a map, right? Then the map is not the territory. Exactly. And I think, you know, you go into the two-factor model, which is a little bit more accurate and precise, but still is a messy model that, Mm -hmm. you know, gets rid of the messy details and says, okay, this is mostly right. This is what we need. And I think I think we have to remember that and keep that in mind uh, because it's not always, it's not, the bodies and mind aren't always going to adapt in that simplistic way. Right. And, and that's, you know, we talk a lot about in distance running and coaching and a lot of the education, you know, Steve and I have looked around and uh, been inspired to create the scholar content is a lot of the contemporary, you know, coaching education is physiology based and treats physiology in the body as, you know, the main adaptive vehicle and mechanism, where actually, if you look closely throughout training history, it is, you know, Roger Bannister, right? The brain is the master organ, you know, uh, Pablo Nervi, oh, my mind is everything, you know, the body are just pieces of rubber. There are hints to it. If you look, 
that really the physiological or you know morphological changes are symptoms and not the root cause you know and i think what they're trying to get at is the brain changes and we know this the brain changes with different activity intensity activity and um, degree of fineness of motor skills and then the body adapts to the brain's changes because the brain releases certain chemicals or says, hey, we're going to keep powering the muscles to do this. We're going to keep powering things to do this. So we need to have some kind of backup mechanism. We need to get nutrients there quicker, i.e. bigger heart, you know, stronger heart. We, uh, you know, need to have better nutrients fueling this activity, i.e. higher blood cell count, you name it, right? So if we take that stance, and we look at improvement being how do I improve the brain versus improvement being how do I improve the body, it kind of changes the game a little bit because then you're doing what Steve and I do when we, t- when we do take on you know new athletes or even um, post-collegiate athletes or pros. I mean, all really the success you and I have enjoyed with those athletes is really just finding the novel stimulus that they haven't been exposed to in their training plans prior. In, in, and then just applying that. <laughs> it's it's not rocket science, but at a certain point, it's really hard. And it's not a conversation of, well, we need to run your mile, get you more miles, or we need to do this. We're not coming in with any preconceived notions. It's just, what haven't you done? And what will allow your brain and body to enjoy the biggest bang for your buck for your time spent doing activity now? Yeah, you know, the uh, it's funny. I'm laughing because... Post-collegiate training, the first couple of years is relatively simple because <laughs> I mean, it's difficult, but it's also simple. It's got its own challenges. Don't get me wrong. But when you get an athlete, you know, I'm, I'm sure, John, you're the same way. I sit there. I talk to them about their training. If they have training logs, they go through it. And all I am looking for that initial evaluation is what I call gaps. Yep. You know, what's not there? What what is not there? What are the big bucket items that are not there? Where I just say, "Oh, this is easy." Like we haven't had this athlete hasn't had this stimulus. You know, sometimes it's they've never sprinted before. Mm. Um, sometimes it's you know they've done a a ton of threshold work, but maybe not much. Just a, a you know a bit faster. Sometimes it's their mileage. Sometimes it's their long run volume. Sometimes it's long progressions. You're just looking. Sometimes it's like um, what I'd call kind of anaerobic speed reserve type stuff. It's mm-hmm. you, you're just looking for these gaps where you're saying, "Up, oh, you know, I know this is one of these big things that everybody does um, that is important to performance. This athlete doesn't have it, so." We're going to focus on that. Yeah. It, it, and it's, I mean, it, it is that straightforward. But the hard part, right, and this is why we create the Scholar Program and share as much as we do freely, is knowing what the gap items are. <laughs> that is, that's the difficulty, right? Because if you, you know, if you only have a hammer, everything's a nail. You need to have a more sophisticated Rolodex of um tools and training tools and different modalities for those training, um, you know, uh, stimuli to take place. And that's, that's the hard work of coaching. That's kind of why the process never ends, right? Like why everyone, you know, like Mike Smith is talking to me about plyometric training and trying to understand a little bit better about how muscle activation, 
happens and how rapid it happens because plyometrics is very much neural, right? Um, you, you're not going to develop any kind of like big, uh, you know, physiological or oxi oxidative benefit from doing plyo training. And you can easily exhaust it because you can have not only uh, neural overload, but mechanical overload because, you know, the tissues, joint angles, and uh, muscles might not be strong enough to handle volumes and volumes and volumes of plyo. So you don't need to do that much of that stuff, right? But to get the stimulus you want. And that degree of sophistication also matters because you have to know where that stuff's thresholds and limits are and then how you sequence and fit it in from an order of operations standpoint, right? Like this is why I advocate for doing a, a lift and then going for a recovery run in that order on an easier day because the lifting that a distance runner needs to do doesn't need to be that high demand from a metabolic standpoint, but it's going to have a high neural demand. And if you're going to do a recovery run, which is focused solely on, you know, um, distributing nutrients through the body through increased blood flow, you can, you can, you know, be a little discoordinated, a little neurally fatigued going into it, but that's going to elevate your recovery profile to one, help feed the muscles and the brain after doing this relatively intense lifting session for, you know, the in distance, uh, the distance runner um, frame of reference, and then doing something that's a very familiar, easy, not hard, you know, activity, which is a 30 minute, 40 minute shakeout jog. Um, you know, at first I got a lot of like fight uh, pushback on that. But when you stop and think about how it makes sense in, you know, uh, the overall training scheme, and also, too, getting the correct sequencing or operations of stimuli you want and the reasoning behind it, it makes total sense. And it's been, you know, been working very successfully with the athletes uh, I've implemented it with here in the last nine months. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that example because it's also reaching outside of the traditional workout stuff to mm -hmm. realize that stimulus can include strength training, it can include biomechanics, all that different stuff. Well, um, I have this thesis here I've, I've developed, Stephen, I'll bounce it off you. You only run slow when you're in a weakened state, right? If you're training for speed, if you're training for power, if you're training for you know stamina or endurance, you want to teach the body faster more powerful movements, right? And so that's a faster pace. But when we run slow, we're in a weakened state and that can be intervals between fast repetitions, a, a longer run that's after a hard workout or hard race or a recovery run that's after, you know, in the afternoon or day after a really intense session. Because if the goal, right, is to teach people how to run fast and, um, you know, express power over a certain period of time, then doing a lot of slow running, even when you feel really, really good, unless it's part of like your um, peaking or freshening up uh, cycle or recuperation cycle doesn't make a whole lot of sense because you're not teaching the brain the right thing. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that is, uh, I like it. I mean, that's it, 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 it makes sense in the sense that often we think of like easy running or what have you as its own little bucket. But when you integrate it into the whole and you say, okay, 
what am I trying to do in these various states of fatigue or recovery? Like it kind of makes things pretty clear, right? You know, how, you know, why do we not come back the day after a workout and do short a day after, let's say an intense VO2 max workout and do um, all out hundreds? Why do we not do that? Because we're probably in a fatigue state from the day before, right? Mm-hmm. Even And even if you take performance enhancing drugs or supplements or whatever, right? Those are just in- increasing the rate of metabolic or you know, physiological repair, it doesn't necessarily make it so like neurally, right, you um, bounce back quickly. So your body could be, you know, more repaired than your brain. And this is why like, sleep is so important. It is the one tool we have for neurological um, repair and advancement. And this is why the athlete who sleeps more you know, gets better. And there really is something to be said for run, eat, sleep, repeat. Like if you think about it, that simple phrase actually has a lot of value in that order because you're creating that damage, that trauma, you're fueling, refueling, and then you're, you know, uh, sleeping so you can recode and rebound neurally from the trauma that you just imposed on yourself when you're in. Yep, exactly. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's keeping it simple. And one thing I want to circle back to that mentioned earlier is that like novel stimulus. I think that, you know, when we're filling those gaps, I think one of the things we have to watch out for is that it's easy to, again, fool yourself into thinking that novel stimulus is somehow special. Because, right? you, you know, you get, let's say, John, you know, we get a post-collegiate runner we say, oh, you know what? They've never done, uh, they've never done, let's say, threshold runs, whatever you call it. I'm going to insert these into the training. All of a sudden, they get, well, boom, performance improves when they haven't for a while, let's say. And you say, great, this athlete really responds to threshold training. This is the key. We're just going to do this a, a ton, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, they stagnate. Why? Because the novel stimulus, they've adapted, right? It's not that threshold training was magical. It's just they hadn't adapted in that direction before. And the the example that always sticks in my head, and it was actually one that I remember having distinct conversations with our good friend Alan Webb about way back, gosh, a decade ago now, is David Krummenacker. Okay? So David Krummenacker was kind of a, one of our better guys in the U.S. in the 815. I think he won a world indoor medal, I believe. He was he was kind of the precursor to the Allen Webb era. He was yep. the, the lone ranger that was like, hey, U.S. middle distance running, I'm going to put you on my back here in the late 1990s. Yes, y- yes exactly. And it was interesting because Krummenacker went from uh, his college coach and then I think trained there for a, a little bit and then switched training to um, – I don't remember the coach exactly, but it was, it might've been Luis de Oliveira, but it was very intense. Um, lots of plyos, lots of short work, and it was a novel stimulus and his performance whoop, jumped through the roof, made a big breakthrough. And then he gets kind of stagnated and all, all that stuff. And I remember Alan made this very astute point where he said, you know, Kremenacker needed all the intense stuff. 
but he then kind of forgot that the work he'd done had like filled other gaps and then once he switched completely he opened up these new gaps on the stuff that he used to do the kind of threshold longer stuff yes and like now he has these other gaps but he thinks the key is then and the intense stuff and i remember thinking oh that's a you know that it was of course simplified what actually ha- occurred but it was it was very astute and a nice reminder early on in my coaching career of being like the magic is not in the exact workout the magic is how do we get all these things balanced up and developed Mm -hmm. and don't leave things behind even if you think something is working you're 100 percent right alan's 100 percent right like the magic's in the sequencing this is what time and time again I think going back through history and looking at successful training, um, you know, programs and athletes has, they're just better at sequencing. Like even, you know, the Lydia disciples, like reading Ron Dawes' books again, you know, he talks about no speed, no speed, you know, and just working on threshold, right. And working on elevating your ability for your metabolism to recover quickly, you know, lowering your heart rate, like basically getting the body primed to do a lot of intense stuff with high density for a consolidated period. Because the promise of Lydiard was speed comes back quick. Why? Because it's neural and it's novel at that point. If you've been doing, you know, marathon training for six months, if you've been doing the hill bounding uh, phase, you know, you're preparing the tissues, that's plyos, right? You've been uh, preparing the, the aerobic metabolism, the cardiovascular system for, to recover really quickly. Then you can run intervals every day like like Lydiard had, right? Because he got the sequencing right. Same thing with Jim Ryan. You know, you look at Jim Ryan's training logs, he's running intervals every single day. And then, you know, one day a week, he's in a six, five, six to like eight mile, quote unquote, maintenance run at six minute pace. Um, and we we sit back and we go, huh, why, how are these, you know, we, we just call these people freaks, right? But even Alan Webb will be the first to tell you, he was not, a, you know, the most talented, like, um, you know, wheel and a wheelbarrow in the, in the shed, he would just adapted and responded really well to Rasco style of training. And we see this time and time again, he, you know, with Rasco style of training, he had big jumps in ability, other coaches, he was not a non-adapter. And I think that's also something we have to hit on too, is, you know, you do have high adapters and non-adapters and low adapters. And that's what makes improvement so hard and why one set um, type of training or methodology or quote unquote style does not work because of the different response and ad- adaptive rates each individual have because what they view as high, uh, and what they're highly sensitive to is different. And it's also different at different times and periods on the career based on the most recent um, stimuli that they've also been uh, undergoing. So that when, before you get mad at athletes or upset as yourself as a coach, or even as an athlete, you, you, you also have to come to um, grips with the fact you might not have a high adapter to this type of training. 100%. And that is, that is such an important point. And it is also why, you know, something we've talked about on this podcast before is there are no magic training paces or zones or what have you. 
right? Because if you fall in love with something, you're like, oh, this is the key to the performance, this workout style here, et cetera. No, it just worked, you know, for these individuals because they're they're really responsive to it at this point in time, at this point in their career. Um, and that's like certain certain workout styles give you different adaptations, obviously, but there are no like magic things. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of saying, okay, I've created the magic formula here. And this formula applied to everyone is going to now work because it's the greatest formula because it's, it's you know, worked with these other individuals without understanding that we have these different gaps. We have this different training and adaptation sensitivity that shifts throughout our career. And, you know, we got to be attuned to it. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that's really the job of the coach is being attuned to it. And I always see it as, you know, a disappointment when an athlete parts ways with the coach. Granted, it could be personality-based, there's just friction, but also too, you know, you're leaving the asset behind the coach who knows you the best to go seek something new and novel and, and basically re-go over a trial and error period and then hoping that that coach's general philosophy is going to be the novel stimulus that catapults you to the next level. And, you know, one of the things that like say, the, the copycat syndrome is real, right? Like a lot of people look at Jerry Schumacher's training and go, oh, that's the way to train. And he goes, no, that's the way for Jerry to train those types of athletes because here's what he looks for specifically. He looks for athletes who already have really good basic speed. Lopez Lamont, Shelby Houlihan. You, I mean, go down the list, right? Like these are people who have already expressed in racing and through workouts that they can just run fast. So they already have good power application. So, you know, they started, I mean, Shelby and Lopez started off as sprinters, like 800 meter types, right? And then what happened was Jerry said, ah, your speed is already at a world-class level. I don't need to develop that at all. Thank you. You've come. But what we're going to do is develop your threshold, the percent that you can run at your close to your max speed uninterrupted without fatigue or metabol incurring metabolic costs. So what we're going to do is we're going to just pork on as much threshold stimulus to elevate your, in, so to say, endurance or what I like to call power endurance for you to run as close to possible at your max um, speed without fatigue for the duration of 5K, 10K, what have you. And it works great for those types who are just quote unquote wired, so to speak, or who got that developmental speed training in early in their um, in their lives and just never forgot how to express it. And to his credit, Jerry does enough maintenance work of speed where every so often they'll do all out 300s, all out 200s, what have you, to maintain the quality, but never build. And so what happens though is you see athletes who don't have that good basic speed at that level, not become, you know, rock stars of the sport or crazy dominant. And they have to, you know, shift and filter to, okay, maybe I'll go to the marathon or maybe I'll go to this or maybe I'll go to that. Right. And it's, it's even Shalane Flanagan had really good basic speed. She was a 1500 meter runner. Right. And she was with John Cook for many years who did a lot of plyo, a lot of med ball, a lot of speed work. So again, it fits the model where it's like, ah, 
All I all we have to do in this situation is elevate their threshold to crazy levels, but it doesn't work if the basic speed or speed reserve is not there at first. And the same thing with um, David Kromenacher, right? That Alan and you, you know, made the observation. He did all this threshold work and that got him to the highest point of his, you know, speed or power capacity there. Then he goes whoop, in with the plyo and like intense fast work. And now he's at this new level of max power, but he doesn't have the physiological, um, you know, training to sustain him at the same height. And so now you got to go back and now that you've elevated your speed or your power, go back and then elevate your threshold. And that's, that is the sequence. That's the order of operation. Speed and power first, threshold next, repeat. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting listening here, listening to the Jerry Schumacher um, explanation there, which is a simple pattern repeated throughout history, right? It's the, it's the Harry Wilson on Steve Ovet, right? Steve Ovet, fantastic um, 400 runner as a, you know, junior athlete does the work, the threshold training, et cetera, to move up to the 815. Mm -hmm. It's the Peter Snell, you know, it's Sebco. It's the Peter Snell, Arthur Lydiard. I found this quote that I think sums this up brilliantly. Um, When Snell was 19 and getting into serious training, Lydiard told him, and I quote, Peter, with the sort of speed you've got, if you do the endurance training, you could be one of our best middle distance runners. Is that that's like prescient, but it's also like uh, it, it's like, you know, Lydiard back in the 60s or 50s or whenever was was aware and said, you know what, this kid's got the basic goods. I'm going to do enough to maintain it, which he did. Right. He had pure sprinting in there and also in that bounding, the hill bounds and all that stuff. And if I can just layer on this endurance, watch out world and what happened, Peter Snell did it. And and that's, you know, that's brilliant observation as a coach. And it's also knowing, you know, knowing what works, um, you know, given the athletes you have, you know, Jerry's quote unquote system, Jerry's in a place where Schumacher, where he recruits the athletes, you know, that he has the pick of the litter in terms of the post-collegiate recruit. And if you watch how he recruits, he does it. Yeah, he gets the best a lot, but he also picks up guys who weren't weren't quite NCAA champions, right? Woody Kincaid is a really good example of this. Like, I was sitting next to Jerry at the Olympic trials in 2016 when Woody had a kick in the semifinals to make the finals in the 5K, right? And Jerry was like, Oh God, that kid's fast. And you just like, his mouth dropped. Cause like Woody was keeping up with, you know, the, uh, the, the nation's top 5k runners holding his own in a kick to the finish to make the finals. And it's like, this guy wasn't even on Jerry's radar until he saw that last 200 meters where Woody just went, you know, right with those guys like Ryan Hill, Bernard Lagat and et cetera. And, uh, you know, Ben true. And it was like, a light bulb went on in his head and he had to do some more homework. Yep, exactly. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like a, it's like a NFL or basketball 
coach, right? A, a general manager. They're sitting there saying, okay, in our system for our team, what, what do we need and what will fit? And that's kind of what Jerry's doing in the sense of, okay, we've got this speed. If we can get athletes in this mold, then here's how we train or coach them up. And the key for you as a coach, if I'm kind of summarizing this up, is understanding what kind of athletes you get in your program and how to coach them up, you know, in what direction. Some kids, you can do the, hey, this guy's really got great speed, power, et cetera. We can maintain that and develop the endurance. Other times you're going to get a lot of, you know, kids who might not be blessed with that much and say, all right, this is the hole they need to fill. This is what's going to hold them back. We've got to go, you know, heavy, intense, speed, power, plyos, all that reactivity, all that stuff, and really dial it down so we can improve this before we do the traditional quote unquote accepted program of endurance stuff. And that's why, like, if you have, you know, a classic periodization scheme that starts with general training, speed work, power work um, should be a part of that general training. Plow work, not so much. Plow work is something you're going to layer later on, kind of like acidosis tolerance work towards the end of your um, specific preparation phase, getting ready to go into the competitive or performance phase. Just because the body learns so quick with kind of plyos and um, acidosis tolerance work, but it comes with a heavy uh, mechanical and physiological tax. But general speed, whether it's hills, which develop more power or just sprinting in spikes, you know, 40, 50 meter flies, which develop more power and elevate that speed reserve that gives you, that elevates a higher, um, again, neuromuscular potential activation for you to build the endurance work off of. So it is smart for any coach, especially coaches working with developmental athletes, athletes who are new or young, to incorporate speed. And the great thing about speed is it is a really, um, you know, one way to think about it is it's like high octane fuel. It's high octane, uh, you know, it's like a pill in a pill form of a meal, right? Like the astronauts have, right? Um, It has all the nutrients in it. So you don't need to overdose on it. You don't need to do that much volume. You can do a little bit. And as long as you do a little bit consistently, like three, four days a week, you don't overload the body mechanically or overload the brain neurally and cause excessive amounts of fatigue, but you repeat that with consistency and a high degree of frequency, you're, you're putting the, the brain and the body and the athlete in a position to learn really quickly how to produce more force and more power in a very specific way that, again, you got to remember when you're sprinting, you this mechanical stress you're putting on the tendons, calves, hamstrings, you know, is uh, you know, so in order of magnitude four to eight times your body weight. You know, Usain Bolt, they said he was putting a thousand pounds of mechanical stress on each limb when he sprinted at, you know, 9.5, right? So this is one reason why you don't need to do as much volume of it. And again, if you subscribe to the, you know, weekly volume gods and always having to, you know, die on the cross of the altar of running this even number of weekly miles per week or else you're not going to get fit. Well, that's going to hold, actually hold you back because then when you go to develop the threshold component, the max speed or max power ability in percentage that you're trying to develop 
won't be as high because you didn't start off by getting the speed up first before developing the threshold or the endurance. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think that is um, a nice way to think about training. It's a nice way to kind of wrap things up here as as we're talking about, okay, it's really difficult to improve. Yes, it still is. Yes, it's, it's incredibly difficult to improve. What we're getting into is the nuance of it in the sense that sometimes you need to go in this direction. Other times you need to go in this other direction. Sometimes you got to fill a gap. Sometimes you got to, you know, maintain this thing. And I think the message to coaches, if I'm sitting here saying, okay, what is the message? Is set the expectations. Let your athletes understand and know that like, as you get better, improvement comes difficult. It's not that it's impossible. But it also means that we have to change and adapt as you grow as an athlete. The magic, the secret is not in the scheme or the program. The secret is in how do we sequence, how do we look at what we have sitting across from us on the track and figure out what they need at this point in their career, in this moment, and try to do that. And that's really what you want to be looking at. I think more than anything as a coach, when you're looking at training plans or if you become a scholar or a scholar and looking at the different um, training um, styles of coaches and programs that they have throughout history is looking at how they're sequencing different um, qualities and different exposures to qualities and how long they're exposing athletes to those qualities. And that's the key in my, you know, we all know the ingredients. It's just a matter of at what time for what athlete is the order of ingredients and the amount of the ingredients going to be applied to hopefully have, you know, a positive and um, improving competitiveness effect. And that's what makes the game so hard. Uh, and it will always be hard because it, it's always an end of one. It doesn't matter. Everyone is unique and different and has different adaptation horizons and sensitivities. And no matter what, you can't say my system is the best system for everyone on the planet. It might be the best for this specific uh, athlete population that you work with. And that's great. But also to know, like we're always going to meet challenges in order to learn and grow and to go into different coaching environments or roles, working with high school athletes versus working with professional athletes or master athletes. You got to be, you know, well-versed in all these things to make a seamless transition and also be able to provide the training and stimulus that athlete needs then to help them elevate and get to where they want to go. Exactly. I mean, be adaptable, be flexible. Don't get stuck. Don't let your ego get in the way of your programs the best. So if you're one of those people who is adept, adaptable, flexible, and always on, always looking to learn and grow, well, guess what? You can head over to the Scholar Program, check it out, which has hundreds, if not thousands of different training models, ideas, etc., which will push you to see that there are a lot of roads to Rome. And the better you are as a coach, the the more you know, the more paths you'll be able to create. So let's get it done. Join us. And we hope that you enjoyed this podcast and discussion. Don't hesitate to reach out. So until next time, thanks a lot for listening. We appreciate you.